Good morning, church. Today we're going to be taking a break from our normal study through the Gospel of John. It's somewhat of a special occasion today. And as, as you probably know, today is our first day meeting back together. It's not our normal place. Uh, it's not in, in our normal way. Things are different still, but it's, it's together. So if you're watching this, then I know that you wish you could be with us, and we wish you could too. But until that time, know that we're, uh, we'll still have sermons up online like this, uh, and that we're still, we'll still be utilizing Zoom for our Bible studies, and, and we want you to be able to connect with the body of Christ however you can. Now, uh, this is still strange. We're still getting used to this. There's still some, uh, there's still a learning curve. Um, and I'm sure that every job, every career has those tasks that no amount of training could really prepare you for. There are tasks that you'll find in front of you that you just couldn't anticipate. And this has surely been uh, a time in, in my job where this has been the case. And, and I know virtually every industry has found itself in such a position and, and every family as well. Now, of course, when this whole thing started, the, the buzzword that kept being repeated and overused was unprecedented. It seems like no one could say anything without saying that it was unprecedented, which is unfortunate because it's factually untrue. Uh, this is not the first time the world has faced uh, a pandemic or something like it. This is not the first time even in modern history where this has happened. Churches were shut down for the Spanish flu as well, twice. Uh, the fact that we can look back into church history and see that Martin Luther in the 1500s and, and Charles Spurgeon in the 1800s both had strong opinions about what to do in times of plague show us that there is still truth in Ecclesiastes 3 where it says there's nothing new under the sun. Now, uh, uh, also in seeing that Spurgeon and Luther would have disagreed about what the proper response was for the Christian in those times. Again, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, but it, it feels new for us, doesn't it? It feels unprecedented because it's, it's new for us. But just because you've never done something doesn't mean that it's never been done before. Uh, to view your situation or our situation as a church as, as entirely unique is to look at the wheel as something that must be reinvented for the, or invented for the first time. And that, that's just not smart. So, uh, instead of, of believing ourselves and our situation to be entirely unique in the history of the world, um, we, instead, we look back. We look back at history, and of course, we look back at Scripture. The, the Scripture advises us to take the old paths, and, and it provides us with many stories and lessons about what happens when the past is forgotten or disregarded. But it also shows uh, the success of God's people when they look back and take wisdom from, uh, from the past. So, so we look back, we look up, we look forward, and this is, has felt new to us because we've never been here. But if you're with someone who has been here before, well, you're in better shape. And that person who's been here before is Jesus. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He knows because he's been there and he knows what to do. And the church, the church that you are a part of, has been here before. And God's people have been here before, and Israel has been here before, and we would do well to see ourselves as part of a greater whole that has more collective experience and wisdom than any of us do individually, or all of us do right now at a specific time. So there's, there's two passages uh, in Scripture that I'd like to look back at today for the sake of educating us in our current situation. It's a way of looking back in order to look forward, 
And because both passages uh, are, are events in history that, that, are, um, that involve God's people seeking to worship, we're also looking up. We're looking to Christ. We're fixing our eyes on Christ. Now, both these passages are about God's people uh, gathering and scattering. You've heard me use those phrases before. Um, the two things the church is, is meant to do, gather together and then spread out and, and get out of the church building. Um, they're both about, both of these passages are about God's people being prevented from assembling together as they were used to, and, and then being able to assemble together again at a later date, but not as they were used to. And one is in the New Testament, we'll, we'll go to that one first, you can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, and the other one is in the Old Testament, we'll do that second, and I'll just keep you guessing. So the first takes place in the book of Acts. And in Acts, of course, the church is young, it's vibrant, it's growing, it's still got that new church smell. And, and in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost, which is today, 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, um, the church is born and thousands are saved. And the church, very early on, adopted a model of gathering together in big groups and then gathering together in small groups. And in Acts chapter 2, it says that they met daily in the temple and house to house. They, they broke bread and they shared their food with simplicity of heart, gratefulness and simplicity of heart. And, and so there was this big public meeting, corporate worship, congregational worship, and then there was home groups with food. And both were important and both were church. Now, this church in Jerusalem that we read about in Acts, it actually looks the most like a big church we might be used to seeing here in our context, more than any other church we see in Acts. You know, because there's programs, there's feeding ministries, um, there's, you know, deacons overseeing separate ministries, and, and there's even people who complain. Uh, and, but then there's this shift. Persecution begins in earnest, led by this guy Saul of Tarsus. And, and the, the, the church is then unable to meet in big group settings. They scatter. Uh, they, they, this starts with Stephen's death in Acts chapter 7. And then Stephen, you know, he was the first martyr of the church. And once that door was opened, persecution continued on through. So uh, if you haven't turned to Acts chapter 8 yet, now would be the time. I'm going to read you uh, from this passage, starting uh, one sentence into verse 1. And it says, At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So there's great persecution. Stephen was the first. Uh, after that, it was as if the floodgates were open. There was this Sanhedrin case of Stephen versus Sanhedrin, and it set a precedent. Once the courts had made the decision that it was okay to kill Christians, well, then it became open season, and it became okay to kill Christians. That's not a good thing. That's a, that's a bad thing. When we look back at the early church and see its strengths and see the things that we want to imitate, uh, we want to imitate it in, in its faith and in its outreach, but, but being persecuted is not uh, necessarily a virtue. That's not an ideal to be reached. Paul knew persecution from both sides, as a persecutor and as the persecuted. And in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, uh, we, we read that uh, Paul says we should pray for our governing officials so that we can lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So the goal wasn't to be persecuted. The goal was to live peacefully and godly and dignified in every way. 
you know, and as we as a church and, and many churches in, in our world have been seeking to follow government's guidelines, uh, I hope you've seen the importance of this verse in a new way, how it is vitally important for us to pray for our leaders so that we can live peacefully, uh, godly, and dignified. And it's sort of a strange thing, I'm sure you've noticed in your own heart, it's strange that we find it more difficult to pray for those leaders we don't like when it's probably those leaders that need our prayers even more, it's probably those leaders that are more likely to prevent us from leading a quiet and peaceful life. So, you know, those are the leaders that we need to pray for so that we can be at peace. Pray for your leaders so that we can be free. It's not better to be persecuted than, than it is to be free. You know, persecution, uh, like death, that's an, that's an enemy. But it is an enemy, as we see in this passage, that Christ has defeated and it is a tool that he can use. Because while this terrible persecution in Jerusalem is taking place, look what happens in verse 4. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. It says, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. <laughs> the, the Christians, except the apostles at that time, they're scattered throughout Judea and Samaria and eventually to the ends of the earth. Hey, remember Jesus' promise about this? In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, You will receive power from on high, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the earth. On Pentecost Sunday, which we celebrate today, uh, that's when they received power. But it wasn't power to gather, it was power to scatter. It was power to be witnesses uh, in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That was the promise, and it was being fulfilled through persecution. God's plan the entire time has been for this message of the gospel to go throughout the whole earth, starting in Jerusalem and then the surrounding areas, and then spreading and spreading and spreading. And even the, the legal persecution in the court that preceded the persecution that we read of in, in Acts 8 and later on was part of the plan for how the word about Jesus was going to get out. In Luke chapter 21 Verse 12, Jesus prophesied, he said, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Uh, the friction that God's people had in facing opposition from governments and outside forces was their opportunity to bear witness. Keep that in mind. We see that Stephen did. He bore witness, and then uh, he, he died. And many more followed in his footsteps. And you have to see here that God is ruling over the suffering of his church, both the sufferings of, of the church as a whole and the sufferings of individuals. He is in control, and he can use those things that look like defeats in order to show us where the victory really is. God uses persecution that follows the death of Stephen as a catalyst to spread the gospel throughout the nations. In Acts chapter 11, verse 29, a few chapters down the road, it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word. Cyprus is an island. They crossed oceans to preach the gospel after the persecution that happened because of Stephen's death. The point here is that these are some, uh, you know, kind of faraway places even beyond the borders of Israel. And the church, it's not only growing, but now it's moving. Previously known as the church in Jerusalem, the church grew locally, and now it's moving internationally. Now, I, I need to be clear right now um, that I'm not suggesting that the church, our church, 
is in any way being persecuted right now. I don't believe that. That time may come. Jesus makes promises that we will, uh, those who seek to live godly will suffer persecution. Um, so I'm not, I'm not saying that that will never happen, but I don't believe that it's happening now. Um, you know, I've, I've spoken with believers who, who have had their lives threatened and who have been driven from their homes and from their country. And, and so I have a very hard time calling what we're seeing now, you know, as anything like persecution. I, I don't think you can draw a straight equivalency. Um, and I'm certainly not saying that, you know, the martyrdom of Stephen and the persecution of the early church is somehow like what we've had to, to do for the last eight weeks. However, however, I am drawing a parallel because there are there is an application to what we see in this passage. I'm drawing a parallel not with our experiences, but between God's will then and God's will now. Do you believe that God is wasteful? I don't. Do you believe that there is a situation that God cannot use for his glory? I don't think that situation exists. Do you believe that God is over the affairs of men just as he says he is? I do. I believe that. There is a parallel, and, and, and this is it. God was working then, and God is working now. And then here's the next level of that parallel. God's will then was for the gospel to spread. God's will now is for the gospel to spread. If you really want a, uh, an, another layer uh, in this parallel, you can see that it was God's will then to use his church that was placed in a time of inconvenience, to say the least, as to use an understatement. He used those people to spread the gospel. And the parallel today is that God is, has his, a plan for you to spread the gospel now. Maybe in new and creative ways that you wouldn't have been able to, to do if we had continued business as usual. Just in our small church, the, the, uh, you know, the, the cutting-edge technology of the telephone has been used to uh, the glory of God maybe more than it ever has in, in our fellowship. You know, should we have been calling and checking in and sharing, you know, making sure our neighbors are okay? Should we have done that before the lockdown? Of course. Um, should the disciples in Jerusalem have gone into all the world to preach the gospel already? Yeah, but it took a significant event, an inconvenience in the extreme, to nudge the church where it was headed, where God was leading them. Now, I have a question for you, and it's one that I've been hinting at all week in the shorter videos that I've been putting up on Facebook. I hope you've seen those. God has had you in a time of separation, one way or another. And I know that he wastes nothing, but I know that I do waste things. I waste opportunities, and I waste time. Now, here's your question to ask yourself. Did you waste the opportunity that God has given you these past weeks? Were you listening to what he was teaching you? Because if you think for a minute that he was wringing his hands, watching the news, wondering what, was, what his next plan was, you're crazy. And if you think God was saying, oh, now I've, my, my line of communication with my church has suddenly shut off, been, been, uh, been turned off, you know, that, that's ridiculous. That never happened. He has been working the whole time and he has been intent on speaking to his church the whole time. The question is, have we been listening? And it's very important that you examine yourself, examine your heart, and see if you missed it. And if you confess that that is the truth, then I, I can encourage you by saying, God always gives remedial classes. He'll teach it to you. Ask him. Ask him what you missed, and the Spirit will lead you into all truth. Now, maybe the lesson for you uh, was simply an awareness of the importance of congregational worship. You know, I, I've talked to people in, in our fellowship who, who said, you know, I don't talk to anyone on Sunday mornings. I come in and I leave, but now I really miss going into church and not talking to anyone. 
Um, you know, you don't know the value of a thing until it's, it's taken from you, until it's gone. Or maybe it was the importance of reaching out to your neighbors and fostering relationships within the body that you've taken for granted, but now you've, you've sought out in a different way. Uh, maybe it's just that you finally realize the importance of praying for your leaders. Now we're coming out of a crisis. We're coming away from an inconvenience and into a new season with its own inconveniences. And um, we're heading, the season we're heading into, we need to be praying that, that going back to congregational worship, that this time would also not be wasted. And that we would have our ears tuned to the Holy Spirit and that we would be able to, to listen to what he is teaching us, what new things he may be teaching us. Um, you know, Paul urges us to pray in 2 Timothy to pray for our leaders so that we can live in peace. But, you know, we also pray that the peace would have would not be misused. Security should never produce stagnation. Affluence should not produce apathy. But the sad truth is, it, it does. It often does. And early on, I was talking to an, another one of you from our church, and you were saying, I don't want to go back to normal. And I'm with you. I want something better than that. I want our church to be more connected, more focused on the small groups, more dedicated uh, to checking in on each other and, and caring for one another. I want, I want our church to be more focused, like the church in Acts, on evangelism, more focused on missions than before. You know, we shouldn't have our eyes set back at something that we see as, um, you know, the way it was. We should be looking forward and saying, God, where are you leading me? The church in Acts, it was scattered. There was... They were prevented from following their routine. And the result was that the gospel of Christ was being spread. Now, we've been scattered in a different way for a little while. But the Lord's will for his church to be growing, living, active, spreading, uh, his, his will for the church to be this thing that declares his glory to the world, that has never changed. And, and I think it's been evident in our church that the spirit who leads us is, is still working in our families uh, and, and in your homes. Um, I, I, I can't, you know, I can't say it enough that, that he, he was working then, he was working in the church in Acts, and he was working uh, before uh, a virus showed up, and he's been working through it, and he's continuing to work. Um, now, that's just the first story. It's a story about a church that had to scatter, uh, but God remained faithful, and he uh, extended his reach in the world, and he spread his glory and his fame in his church, even when dispersed. Uh, his church continually faithfully worked um, at spreading the gospel. And I, and I want our church to have this same testimony. And, and I would encourage you, um, I've been encouraged by seeing that this is our church's testimony. You know, one, one small example is we have this uh, Bible study on Tuesday mornings, a women's Bible study that comes on Tuesday mornings. And when, when they were meeting here at church, um, I think there was maybe eight uh, ladies that met in the, in the classroom and and that was great, and when they'd show up, I would, I would leave. Um, but, but now, uh, they're meeting on Zoom, and that Bible study has extended to uh, include two different states and even another uh, country. We have one person coming in from Mexico to, to be part of that Bible study, our Wednesday night Bible study, where we usually have about a dozen people, and we'll come and, and you know, usually enjoy a meal and, and worship and then study uh, through the, the Old Testament. Now that we have it on Zoom, we have twice that on a regular basis. Um, so these are things that, you know, the, the Lord has worked in order to extend the preaching and the teaching of his word. 
That is the testimony of our church. And I hope you're listening to see what part you have in this extending ministry. Now, that's, there's some parallels there between Acts chapter 8 that we can draw and take encouragement from. But there's a second story that I want to look at. And this happened a long time before that, when the Jews returned from the, their exile in Babylon. For that, you can turn to Ezra chapter 3. Um, in, in Ezra, the, the congregational worship that those people had been deprived of is now resuming. And I think in both of these stories, there is the reminder that we need that we're not reinventing the wheel, that, that we're, we're not that unique, and, and that's a good thing. We are part of a family of the people of God that has experienced things like this before, and that should lead us to ask the right questions. Um, asking the right questions is really a, a matter of, of spiritual wisdom. Um, not just, you know, we need to be asking the question, not just the question that we all want to ask, and the question that many of you have been regularly asking me for the past several weeks, which is, when are we going back? That's one question. It's not a terrible question. But a better one would be, am I doing this right? Or perhaps, am I sensitive to what God is doing in this time? Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of the Israelites returning to Jerusalem after 70 years spent in exile in Babylon. And uh, in Ezra chapter 3, congregational worship happens for the first time in, in, in 70 years. And, and yes, of course the people were still worshiping house to house in those small groups. They were raising their children in the faith, obviously. It had been 70 years. This is a new generation. Um, and they were still worshiping the God of their fathers. But there was no large group congregational worship. And I hope you can feel for these guys, maybe more now than ever. I hope you can get a small sense of the yearning and the waiting and the emptiness, maybe, that these people felt, who remembered what it was like to go to the temple, you know, who remembered what it was like to sing together as a people. And they had the songs of David running through their minds, you know, and they're, they're, they're drawing new meaning from David's psalm saying, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You know, they want that. And, and we want that. And again, I'm not, I'm not comparing this season with the, the persecution of the church in Jerusalem. And I, I don't want to compare our current situation with a Babylonian exile either. We're not even close. But... In this way, at least, there is a similarity. You know what it means to miss going to church. And they knew what it felt like to miss going to church. For 70 years, they hold on to their faith in small communities, house to house, here and there. But there's no congregational worship. And then they're given the green light. Now, again, we have to be careful drawing any straight lines between a biblical story and current events. You can get into a lot of trouble doing that. But, um, but, but there is a, another small thing worth noting that, uh, that I, I feel the need to point out. God's people in exile waited until they had the government's approval to go back and build the temple. Now, if there's anything more un-American than that, I don't know what it is. But please, consider this. The temple was not built in rebellion. When Nehemiah builds the wall, he has enemies. There were accusations his enemies brought. There were some bad guys in the book of Nehemiah who tried to put a stop to building the wall around Jerusalem. And this is their strategy. The strategy, the, the strategy excuse me, of the enemies of the people of God is this. It was to paint a picture, uh, to give the impression that the worshiping people were rebellious people. 
they write back to the king who had given Nehemiah the authority to build. And they say, watch out for these people. Watch out for these worshiping people. Look in the history books. They're troublemakers. Whenever they build a city, they rebel. That was the reputation that the accuser of the brethren wanted to give to the world. And it was that reputation, even though it was false, even though it was slander, it had the power to temporarily halt the work on the wall. Now, it is unfortunate, but it seems to me that there are many of God's people today that would take these men's accusations rather as compliments and marching orders. But that's not what I see in the people of God, in Ezra and Nehemiah. These were men who were willing to fight and die for what they were sent to do. They hold a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other while they build, but they were able to hold on to that fervency without being rebellious against God-appointed authorities. This should also be the goal of God's people today. Now, 70 years without congregational worship is a long time. And, and then they are granted the right to return. And they lay the foundation of the new temple. Solomon's temple had long been destroyed. Even by now, it's just, you know, even the ashes would have been blown away. Uh, they just have to clear the rubble, set the forms, mix some concrete, I guess, and, and pave the way, literally, for the next temple. And then something really strange happens. And you can turn to Ezra chapter 3. This is from Ezra chapter 3, uh, verse 10. Uh, when the builders laid the foundation, um, yeah, verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood on their uh, stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever towards Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout, when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. This is a strange story. Uh, so what happens here is that this is the best thing that's ever happened for some people. And it's the saddest excuse for the best thing that's ever happened for some other people. Uh, there's two attitudes presented. There's one group of people uh, who, they, they don't remember any good old days. Uh, they don't remember Solomon's temple. They were born in Babylon. They have no other context to see any form of, of um, congregational worship, any form of or beginning of worship. This is fantastic for them. And then you have another group of people, people who are in their 70s and, and older, who, re, who remember what it was like being brought to the temple with their, their parents. Now they remember what it was like to go to, to Jerusalem for the feasts. They remember how big it was, how bright the pillars and the walls, how beautiful the music. And now returning to something you haven't seen since childhood, that can always be kind of a rude awakening. You know, the tree you played in isn't as big as you thought it was. The magic isn't quite there. So now, these people who have these memories from childhood of Jerusalem, and they see a concrete slab, and they think this, this is the temple, this is what church is like now, and they weep. Now, there's a, there's a problem already here, because what you have is two groups of people who are neglecting each other. 
Um, you know, in the New Testament, it says, and Peter says, we're to mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice. The, the sound that was heard was confusion and noise because, you know, with that, that's what you get when there's no unity. And those who are shouting for joy uh, maybe should have seen the sorrow in the elders' faces and, and probably done well to learn from that. It's rude to party at a funeral, and for some of these people it was a funeral. Ecclesiastes says it's better to dwell in the house of mourning than the house of feasting. So perhaps there could have been more sensitivity there, and it had a, a moment of silence or a moment of mourning before the, the celebration started. But uh, what would be more difficult, but more profitable, and I will explain why in a second, was for those who had the fond memories of Solomon's temple to put aside their rose-colored glasses and stop being driven by their memories of the good old days, and instead be glad that their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren were now going to be able to take part in the building of a new temple. I mean, they, these are people who had, had memorized the Psalms that say God's faithfulness will extend to a thousand generations. That includes their children and their children's children. Now, I say this is better for them to put aside their grief at this time, because that's what the Bible actually says. See, during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, God sent prophets to encourage the people in their work. And one of these prophets was Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 4, verse 9, the Lord says, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. So the context of this laying of the foundation in Ezra chapter 3 is, is Zechariah chapter 4 saying, he's, Zerubbabel is laying this foundation, he's going to finish it, and you're going to know this is my work. And then God says in, in Zechariah 4 verse 10, who dares despise the day of small things? God takes sides, and he takes the side of the rejoicer. And he says to those who would despise this day of small things and grieve that the new way isn't as good as the old way, and he says, how dare you? Who dares despise the day of small things? So we, we see a people who have been deprived of congregational worship for 70 years, and then they are called back. They are able to return. Uh, they don't return rebelliously, but they return uh, to uh, a, a different scene. They, they don't return to the way things were before. Before there was a temple, and now there's just a slab of wet concrete, right? Before there was a, a city with gates, and now they have to rebuild those gates. And we, as a church, we find ourselves in a place where we have also been deprived for a much shorter time from congregational worship, being able to see each other and sing together. And, and now we're returning, but not in the way that we're used to, and not, not how we're used to. There are changes. Um, it's different gathering together right now. And, and some of those changes are, are temporary, and some of them may not be. God may be calling us to a different kind of church. Uh, but there's two attitudes that we could have going into that. We could see this as a poor excuse for normal. Um, now, I'll be honest, that's the way I feel about having church on the internet. right? I would be the ones wailing and weeping. If I, see if I can drown out anyone else's laughter if we had church just online from now on. But, but you know, we could come back without that attitude. We could come back, and when we realize that it's not like it was before, we could do something better. You know, we could complain, or, uh, I think this is more likely with our church, we could rejoice like it's the best thing that's ever happened to us. Zechariah, he wasn't the only prophet that God sent to Ezra and his workers. Haggai was a contemporary of Zechariah's, and he was there too. Now, in Haggai chapter 2, 
the Lord again addresses the naysayers who wish for the good old days. And in verse 3 of Haggai 2, it says, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? And they would be nodding their heads and saying, Yeah, someone finally gets it. This is depressing. It doesn't look anything like I want it to. And then the Lord continues in Haggai 2, verse 7. He says, I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of the latter will be greater than the former. The only thing unprecedented with God is the greater glory that he sets ahead of his people as we are being transformed from glory to unprecedented glory. And the promise that Haggai brings is this thing that you look at now that's as nothing with the good old days or what you remember and your, the ideal that you've set out. This is going to be better than anything I've done before. The promise to Ezra and to his workers and, you know, that would be fulfilled. It would be on this foundation that Zerubbabel lays. It would be on the, this foundation that a temple would be built. And that temple, after he heavy modifications from Herod and others, 400 years later, Jesus of Nazareth would visit this temple. He is the desire of all nations. He is the glory of God. And the promise that God gives his people who are returning is this. There's no going back. We're not going back. It's not going to be like it was before. It's going to be better because I am going to inhabit the new work. And that's the, the direction I'm praying. Uh, that's the hope that I have as we return. Um, that we're not going to go back to something. We're going to go on to something that's going to be even better. Let me pray for you. Jesus, I pray for unity in our church. I pray that our uh, body here um, and the expression of, of your body, Jesus, uh, would reveal the glory of God that in our holy assembly, our holy congregation, you would be made known um, and that in the new thing that you are doing, you would be seen in new ways by people who haven't seen you before. Lord, I thank you that you are our shepherd, that you have protected us, that you are our guide. And we love you and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.